She was a nice wife, even liked me for a time. I enjoyed her company, and in the early days, when sleeping together had this scorched earth sort of magic, we mistook that for love. But the magazine articles she sometimes gave me didn't make sense to me. I could never find a description of what it's like. One summer, a 22-year-old girl came to work at the bank as a teller. I was training them then. And she was pretty and young, and below her wide, flat forehead, her gaudy green eyes had a hint of confusion or even hurt in them. I was seduced. She was interested. I waited for her to arrive at work in the morning and maneuvered to be by the elevator or in the corridor for two minutes of her. We went to lunch a few times, talked at some dreary bank parties. Unable to touch her, I stood against a white wall in some excessively carpeted middle management home, talking to her, staring, trembling. I want. That is what it is like. Insufficiently tidy. It's unkind to ask a man to have feelings. This is what I was thinking, standing in the rain, the day the cat came back. But that was later. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's Short Story Short Podcast. I'm Chris, here as always with... Christy Baxter. And a gurgling stomach. Ah. Ah. Uh, Yes. Hmm. Christy. The new new guest. (laughs) The new guest. Yes, my alien symbiote. Uh, (laughs) Hey, Christy, what, what did we read this week? This week, we read In the Rain by, crap, what is this? Stephen Stephen Bartleby. That's right. The brother of Donald Bartleby. The differently talented brother of Donald Bartleby. They they both have a very, very interesting sense of expression. But I think Donald Bartleby was more interested in experimentation, whereas Stephen Bartleby was just criminally insane. I don't, I don't know if I get criminally insane from In the Rain. No, you're right. I think actually it's really, he's criminally honest about himself. Yeah. I mean, if he's, that's the thing is we can't say that he's writing about himself. He could just be a a good writer putting himself in another human being's shoes and telling their story. And this doesn't mean that he's the kind of person who barely has feelings or isn't really able to understand what feelings are for the major part of the the piece. So like, I don't necessarily think it's, it has to be him. Like that's, that's one thing that's always, always bugged me a little bit in writing is I feel like if I write something, people are automatically going to think that I'm capable of it or that it's about me. And many times it's, it's not, it's, me trying to write a real true-to-life character and having to step into their shoes and so he very well could have been doing this or I could not know anything about him and maybe he spent his uh, latter years of his life wasting away in a sanitarium. (laughs) What's funny is that you know when you are someone who publishes in the New Yorker I assume this is who you are. (laughs) I still don't believe it, though. <laughs> and, and that's what's great about this is that 
what he's managed to do, and maybe this is actually part of his problem of just being a darn good writer, is he manages to get you to sense that detachment from everything. And he does it literally in one of the best first sentences I could ever think of. She, uh, you know, she even liked me a bit. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. I mean, that's right up there with my mom died last, last week, I think, or, you know, the classic line of the stranger. It absolutely establishes him as a character. And what's even more interesting is it doesn't establish the main character, which is a cat. Yes, yes, it is a cat. I love that that's, we haven't really had that too much main characters that are cats. But one thing I wanted to say about how he establishes this and that, and I think it, it goes towards the differences between him and his brother, as far as these two writers are concerned, is that when literary people, be they writers, agents, publishers, editors, teachers, professors, et cetera, when they're talking about voice, this is what they're talking about. This is, they always say, I can't define voice, but I know it when I see it, which as a writer is really frustrating for agents to say that. And they say, it's really important that you have a unique, distinct voice. And that voice is not necessarily your voice, it's the voice you're channeling into the piece for the character, the narrator, whoever we're hearing from. And yeah, it's, it's probably the hardest part of writing. And this is very much a piece by somebody who's mastered it. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think that's one of the key things is there are two things that are actually have very, very poor definitions, and that's voice and style. And yeah, and the thing is, is that those two things can kind of intermingle and become part, they have like a symbiotic relationship, and that makes it even harder. Mm -hmm, exactly. A friend of mine, a computer scientist, actually designed a algorithmic music generation system to, to figure out what style was. And uh, at the end of the project, it's been running since the uh, late 70s. Um, he has no freaking clue. Uh, so, um, but one of the great things about this piece is it doesn't necessarily have an economy of language, but it definitely has an economy of idea that I found fascinating. It is, he has a central theme, which is, uh, my wife was probably right about me. <laughs> and he hangs these things on it in such a way that even the points where it steps away from that central premise, it's actually strengthening that, that central premise. And it's so simple. This story, I mean, you could literally tell this story, uh, you know, if you're trying to badly describe your, uh, your short story, uh, guy loses cat, finds another one, and then finds the right one. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is essentially the, the very, very basic plot. And then along the way, you have him examining, using this experience to examine what feelings he actually has because the idea is supposed to be that his wife says he doesn't have any feelings and there's something unnatural about him and uh understanding them a little bit better in, in light of the, the recognition that they exist although how much he actually decides to recognize it uh at the end <laughs> doesn't uh probably not a whole lot but it's a tiny step you kind of get the feeling that maybe he could take another tiny step later on and eventually get to the point where he could you know love <laughs> um, so but like 
I, I agree with that. And, and it's that economy of ideas, sort of, but it also becomes overarching and, and, and a big, broad, very human idea, this idea of the feelings that we have and emotion and ex the experiences that cause us to feel certain ways, negative, positive. And he, he feels like, it feels like maybe he thinks the rest of the world is big, big feelings, like he says. And he says, mm -hmm. I have crooked little feelings, I guess. Nothing you could write a magazine article about. Not like these people with these giant rectangular emotions that sound like volumes of an encyclopedia. Guilt, hysteria, independence, joy, loss, zed, rot. Rot, I don't know exactly how you're supposed to throw that out there, but. <laughs> But yeah, like it's a bigger idea of how am I experiencing the world in comparison to other people and those two ideas not matching up. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot to do with the place that we were as a society at this point. Um, that we were, of course, coming to the point where it was, uh, where this sort of the redefining of what masculinity meant mark one um where it was you know it's okay to feel and the whole you know it's okay to be free to be you and me type stuff but what also ended up happening if you look at this story sort of as a bigger picture is this is a guy saying i literally don't get the big picture of these things but that doesn't mean i don't have even a little bit and that that has a validity to it too, which is a really interesting point. Uh, you couldn't write this story today and not have it read as I was, I'm emotionally closed off and the only thing I can connect to are cats. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> which, given the idea of cat ladies, is ironic. <laughs> exactly. I think that that moment is something that at that point, I think, because this was written, I think in 74. That right? sounds right. Yeah. Um, and that it's this idea that it is, I think he's sort of presenting it as, it's okay if you're not letting it wash over you. It's okay if just, you know, you get the dribbles every now and then. And it's okay if you can only love a cat. Um, yeah, life can't be all the big giant feelings all the time. That would be exhausting. <laughs> like you've got to have some moments of just the quiet, the 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 little crooked little feelings. I can't believe you said that. I know, right? And he uh, he manages to do a lot of this with what I find delightful sarcasm and uh, cynicism and everything, which I feel is very of the moment too, and would help people who are coming to it more on from the feelings, people who identify more with the main character, one well, of the main character, but our narrator, people who identify mm -hmm. more with the narrator coming at it will be able to identify more with the piece because they recognize themselves and they see somebody who's making fun of the same things that they want to make fun of. I hate to keep quoting, but I'm gonna. So next thing you know, the cat will be telling me I've got to learn to let go and share my feelings and cuddle, Jesus. Like you hear the air quotes and they're actually in there too, in the piece. And I feel like that's one way of reaching out 
to the people who you're are going to be hardest to reach without actually having to touch them. Yes. And what I love is there's that that is a a darling amount of cynicism in this that I just it moves me. But I love that he's placing all of this on the cat. And I love the fact that he has this view of cats at, at the beginning that is uncomplicated, that they are just things that move in and out of your life. And then it gets complicated. And I love the fact that he not only lets it get complicated, but he lets it get really complicated. <laughs> and I think that that end image of the cat coming back, <laughs> I don't know why it just, I just picture him looking at him and going, meh. <laughs> Yeah, I think the relationship with the cat actually became more complicated than the relationship with his wife. Mm -hmm. so, there's definitely more of a story to tell as he can, uh, you know, as he displays. Absolutely. And I love the fact that he is willing to fight for the cat and not for his wife. Uh, and I think part of that is because there's a sense that he doesn't see himself as a failure for not being able to be a husband. I think he sees himself as being a failure if he couldn't keep a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think I think he tried a lot harder to keep the cat than he did to keep his marriage. And he's okay with that. And I'm okay with him being okay with that. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got any other thoughts? Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, I like the unexpected, um, word choice in some cases gaudy green eyes really got me it mm -hmm. almost offended me in a weird way like a second or third and offended because i was like well that's not fair people can't help their eye color especially in the 70s they didn't even have color contacts like <laughs> but then i was like hey it's just it's it's a story that's ridiculous and you're being ridiculous but then and then some of the like the quotes that i gave like the giant rectangular emotions so mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to give uh, give sort of the props to that because I do enjoy, always love being surprised by word choice and having it be so apt and work so well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I also want to point out the endless readability of this. It is, it is just endlessly, he does not give you, you don't stumble anywhere through this. And I think part of that is because he is writing like he would talk. And he just happens to be really freaking smart. <laughs> so funny that I had that in my notes and I was looking at it. I was like, I didn't get to that because I meant to mention that my very few notes. I have I have three bullet points, Chris. I only have three. <laughs> and, but yeah, that that is probably part of what makes, you know, that probably made getting the distinctive voice established in this a little bit easier because it's so much easier to do in any sort of conversational style that's not to take away from the accomplishment at all but that's just to say that you know if hey any budding writers out there if you're struggling with voice go first person and make it real conversational like this and you'll have a lot easier time of it that's 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 the place to start and all the rest of you budding writers just give up now yeah. exactly just stop <laughs> It's okay. You, you can rest now. Oh, this got dark. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's what happens when you talk about budding writers. It gets dark real quick. 
<laughs> well, we all can't be a Bartleney. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think there's even a third Bartleney, but I think it is a niece. Oh, interesting. Wow, this family, they've proven it's genetic, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's a it's a neat little uh, thing that we've got going here. We're going to have to do all the Bartleneys. Uh, we'll find like a third grade uh, report, read from one of the other lesser ones. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I like this story quite a bit. I'm glad I stumbled upon it while I was literally looking up uh, rainfall amounts in the White Mountains. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a weird Google history. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I have multiple true crime podcasts, so I, I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll let you guess what the single most popular thing that has been sent to me over the past four days. Single most popular thing that has been sent to you? Yep. More than 50 times. Like shared with you on, on the internet? Yep, or in email also. Or in email. Well, the email is on the internet, but I'm a nitpicker extraordinaire. So, gosh, uh, I don't know. I can't think of what it might be. The cracking of the Zodiac cipher. Oh, that, of course. <laughs> yes. The yes. guy who has the Zodiac Killer podcast has been getting so, stay. so many people are pointing that out. And oh, I'm going to yeah. say it on the record. Stephen Bartleby was not the Zodiac Killer. Exactly. I agree with you 100%. I'm behind you on that. Probably. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this was a fun one. Hey, Christy. Yes. What are we going to read next week? I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> next week, we are reading The Man Who Went to the Moon twice by Howard Rodman. Excellent. I am so looking forward to that. Our first reading from Dangerous Visions, the Harlan Ellison anthology. Very yes. exciting. Yes. All right. Well, once again, Chrissy, it's been an absolute blast. Yes, it has. Thank you. I'm enjoying this as the snow barricades us in the house. So. <laughs> well, just don't go all shining on us, please. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I can almost promise I won't. <laughs> that almost will have to do. <laughs> well, this has been... Short story. Short podcast.